This is Alan Abadessa, and you are listening to Radio Eight Ball with Andros Jones. Radio 8 Ball Show. I'm your host, Andros Jones, and this is the show where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting those randomly chosen songs as the answers to the questions, like picking musical tarot cards. This is Radio 8 Ball Season 3, The Appening. 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 Where we are engaging the Pop Oracle using the Radio 8 Ball app, which is filled with every song recorded in the history of Radio 8 Ball, as well as a couple of hundred of my own. I hope by now you've downloaded the Radio 8 Ball app if you're an iPhone user. It's free, and it allows you to play host and conduct your own musical divinations just as we do here on the show. The app also plays the latest podcast and selects the randomly chosen Pop Oracle song of the day. On last week's episode of Radio 8 Ball, Louise Goffin asked, What is the best question to ask in life? And received as her randomly chosen answer from the pop oracle Sense and Antisense by Synchronistic Duologue, recorded on Radio 8 Ball on KAOS in Olympia, Washington, on May 8th, 2007. Movies in parallel, different paths, meaning sound won't say everything. You so see me standing, comprehend seeing here before you, on books you haven't read, and songs for your unintentional therapy. I'm a flower, so as blooming, these certain wilting bent and buried fertilizer for this bud, I am to the voice of least insistence before you. In the grand scheme of whatever, to save I'm lost in the hallowed eyes of yesterday's carrying tomorrow. A decade's flavor tomorrow. full of uncommon Search. knowledge. I have no idea who synchronistic duologue are. Back when the show was on Chaos and Olympia, if someone got in touch with me and wanted to be on the show, I said yes. And I have a feeling this was one of those last-minute bookings where they reached out to me that week. We didn't have a guest scheduled, and they came in, did their bit, and were gone without leaving a trace or a forwarding address. That being the case, I decided to ask a friend with whom I have been engaged in a synchronistic duologue of sorts for years. Alan Abadessa published a literary collection in 2011 called The Sync Book. In it, he included a chapter of mine about Radio 8 Ball. A year later, Sync Book Press put out my book, Accidental Initiations in the Kabbalistic Tree of Olympia, and Alan was the editor. In 2015, Alan and I co-produced and co-hosted a podcast called Synchronize for the Sync Book Network. I'll play a clip from that show at the end of this podcast. And in 2014 and 2016, Alan and I co-produced two sync summits in Olympia, Washington. The second one was a brutal and abject failure. The first was simply brutal, although it felt good at the time. That one, which took place on the weekend of August 8th, 2014, serves as both the initiating incident 
and the connective tissue to the closing episode of Alan's latest film series, Hindsight 2020, which we discuss in this episode. I highly recommend checking it out. Every once in a while, this show turns in on itself. This is one of those. I knew it was going to be full of potent synchronicities before we even started, so maybe I created it. I mean, I did, but that doesn't mean I have any control over it. Back when Alan and I were hosting Synchronize, we used to refer to the easy synchronicities as the low-hanging sync fruit, as in, we don't need to cover that, that's low-hanging sync fruit. Well, it feels like this episode takes place mostly in the high branches. Not that I brought anything too specifically elevated to it, other than a synchronistic resonance I can't seem to shake and a setting for our session which is literally up in the trees. To tell you the truth, I was drinking mezcal throughout. I'm not particularly proud of that, but knowing it would be good, and also knowing the difficult history it's skating upon, I was so amped I was blocked. Perhaps feeling more inspiration than I could handle. Well, the Pop Oracle kicked me in the heart that night, and reminded me of some inconsistencies in the firmament of my current situation in life. Nothing I wanted to look at, and certainly nothing I know how to explain. When one of these turns in on itself, like this, I just leave it to you to make entertainment of it. I'm too busy dying through every fucking second. And isn't that worth your support? You know, there are a few ways that you can help the show out. First of all, the most important thing is the thing that you absolutely refuse to do, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Give us good reviews and ratings. It's almost become a running gag how few of you, which is to say none of you, will just leave us a good review when I know you love the show because you keep tuning in. Anyway, I can't figure out what's going on with you. All I can do is keep asking. Of course, I also really encourage you to check out our Radio 8-Ball app, which is available from the iTunes App Store, and it's free. It's full of so many great songs, including a bunch of my own, and uh, it's a great way for you to share this format with your friends and play host of your own Radio 8-Ball show. And uh, yeah, well, I certainly hope you check that out. And of course there's the Patreon campaign. That's where I ask my questions, and my questions are awesome. I'm really great at this. I've been doing it for 20 years, and I'm just getting better. So if you're not joining the Patreon campaign, and it's a dollar a month, which is basically nothing, 25 cents a week. Uh, I mean, if I was just going to knock on your door every week and ask for 25 cents, I'm sure you'd give it. But uh, but I know this takes this little extra thing. You got to go and go to Patreon. You got to find it. That's Patreon slash Radio 8 Ball, all one word. So those are the ways you can help Radio 8 Ball out. And of course, if you haven't already, please remember to hit subscribe in your podcast app so you get our episodes as soon as they are released. And before we get down to digging into some synchronicity with this week's guest, let's do as we always do and kick off the musical divination with the pop oracle song of the day from the day I had my conversation with Alan Abadessa on August 2nd. 2020. That song is Redwood by Mirna, recorded on Radio 8 Ball in Hollywood, California, on January 10th, 2018. We're doing the... 
Radio 8 Ball on August 2nd, 2020, with our guest, Alan Abadessa, here to help us decode last week's synchronistic duologue, answer, ask his own question, and just uh, check in on the synchronistic level. Welcome back to Radio 8 Ball. Hey, Andras, thank you so much for having me. I am really happy to be talking to you today, and... Um, and just happy to be engaging with the Pop Oracle again. It's been been too long. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you what I'm asking everyone who joins our sessions during this weird third season of Radio 8 Ball, the happening, 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 happening. How and where are you pandemicking? So I am living in Richmond, Virginia. Um, I am very, all things considered, I'm incredibly lucky uh, I had moved just just a few months before this all happened. Uh, I was previously living in a very small apartment in the heart of the city, and my partner and I had discussed, you know, doing this sort of suburban thing. Uh, it's something I've never experienced. You know, I grew up in New York City, and I just sort of never... I don't know. I've just never had had space, and we. Uh, she she's a sculptural and uh, texture artist. She always needs like all this workspace, like actual studio space. I need an office where I can record and work. And for the amount of money we were spending to be in a little apartment downtown, we saw this great big house. You know, literally ten minute drive. It's not like I'm we're in the boonies just 10 minutes outside of town and I have a big house with the yard and everything and we were like cool let's try it let's see if we like that lifestyle and just have the space to work and for ourselves and for pets and everything and then here we are uh, you know a few months later in lockdown and I just realized immediately if we had to spend that in a tiny apartment we would have it would have been miserable, um, miserable and dangerous and everything, right? Uh, but this was wonderful. We have a space where we really um, 
we're we're able to feel incredibly comfortable and safe and you know plant a garden and like be like okay cool what's if we don't know what's coming how can we be responsible and uh i don't know it's just i feel incredibly lucky that that change happened uh if this was going to happen that it happened when it did so there are two things i happen to know we, we, we speak pretty regularly and i happen to know a couple of things so there's a couple of so i know that before this happened, you were putting all of your energy mostly towards your job, which I'm kind of curious about the trend to, if you want to talk about a little bit about the transition. And then I know that you're coming up towards the end of a particular project you've been working on. So uh, I'd love to just maybe dip into those if you'd feel comfortable talking about either topic. Sure, yeah. So I was bartending, you know, I was bartending at a place that I absolutely loved. I mean, um, I know as someone you used to be in the service industry yourself, you know there are places that you like and there are places that you hate and there are places that you love. Um, and the ones that you love are very few and far between. But I really enjoyed this job. Um, it was, you know, pure volume bartending. Uh, it was really fast paced, really high volume a lot of fun and I felt good just like you know he's moving my body and uh, I loved the hours I had gosh just before this thing hit I had just you know some people had left and there was some transitioning scheduling going into spring and coming out of winter and man I had the perfect schedule I mean I had literally if you could have the golden schedule for for making the most money the best shifts the best like everything that was perfect for me i was in this really sweet spot and it was just as we were approaching the uh saint patty's day you know a big big money and bar night of the you know one of the busiest nights of the year and uh suddenly it was a question of like do we stay open do we what's happening and um it was this sort of scary, I just remember the last bar shift I worked was that Saturday night, I don't know, probably March 14th, I think that might have been. Um, and it, we were packed and the whole shift, I just washed my hands as much as I could and was thinking to myself like, well, I've touched hands with nearly everyone in the city. If I'm going to get something, I'm going to get it, you know. <laughs> like that that was the condition where I worked in and then the next day they called and they're like listen we just made the choice to shut down and then um, I think a day or so later the laws changed and everything had to shut down anyway um, that was really upsetting to me um, something I think a lot about uh, I did in April I participated in this sort of group magical ritual uh, centered around coronavirus healing and I focused my intent on getting that job back uh, I, I wanted I wanted to be back in that space um, it was just uh, as far as work situations go it was it was one of the happiest situations I'd had so it's interesting that that's where I was in April, right? It was like, oh, I want to kind of get things back where they were. I want this that return to normalcy. And uh, now, four months later, I, that 
doesn't even make sense to me. It, is, it seems like a lifetime ago. Um, not only did it take a while for you know three months of being out of work, and then once the bar did reopen, uh, we were open for. I was literally back at work for two weeks before someone at my bar got coronavirus, tested positive, and we had to shut down again. And they you know, just made it super real again. And um, so they have since, you know, cleaned and, you know, quarantined and all that sort of stuff and reopened. But I have not returned. I've, I've that just sort of made it real enough to me that I decided I need to make some other moves and maybe try some other things. And um you you know that my my boss basically said to me, you know, if you're if you're working here, you should assume you're gonna get it, and um, I don't want to get it. Um, <laughs> I don't have you know, uh, no, I don't have health insurance. I'm like most Americans. I'm you know, essentially, uh, I was happy with my job and making oh, decent money, all things considered. But I was not. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm a few, two paychecks away from from a crisis, just like anyone else. And I don't have health insurance, and that was, you know, not worth me gambling my life for, um, reopening the economy or whatever. And not to get intimate about money, but just so people know, what's minimum wage in Virginia for bartenders? Um, I believe it's seven. Well, so I was making. As a as a bartender, I was making two thirteen an hour, right? As my hourly, right. and because I'm working for tip, right? Uh, I think minimum wage here is seven seventy five. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. It's one of those things. So, because I live in Washington, and bartenders in Washington get paid fifteen dollars an hour, or you know, or something commensurate to that, plus their tips. And when we hear about Wow, okay. The situation in, in states where tipped employees get so little you, makes you go crazy for the country we're in. Speaking of which, you are in the middle of uh, finishing up a film series called Hindsight 2020 that's about the crazy country we're in. You want to say anything about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this this pandemic situation has... You know, um, in one one sense, has gifted me time to to refocus on my artwork. I had I had been working on this series for over a year, but it was something that I was doing, you know, wor- working a full time job, and then in my spare time working on this documentary series. And this has allowed me to really focus. Uh, of course, you know, being in an incredibly uncertain unstable, insane asylum of a country, it has also brought back a wave of anxiety issues that I haven't had to deal with for quite a while. Um, it has, I gotta say, it's like just impacted my sort of uh, my nerves, my mental health. Uh, so it's the gift of time, but with the curse of, um, I don't know, feeling unsure and, and um you know, felt like in the beginning, I'm like, hey, great, I have all this time. Let me make this video. And I'm like, well, I could be dead in two weeks. Like, is this how, you know, if I'm going to go out 
am I, I better make a damn good video or or do something much more enjoyable or you know just sort of cause me to refocus and think about what do I really want out of this project and I think that shows in the course of the video so the first episode that I made a year ago is much more I don't know um, academic uh, objective I'm just this narrator you know relaying objective information and then in the last few episodes it has become incredibly personal incredibly intimate of just this is this is my experience of the last 20 years living in this crazy country following the trajectory uh, that has led us to where we are and uh, trying to document uh, I guess if I could explain what the series is. Probably the easiest way I could explain it is that I'm doing a dissection of, hmm, I'd say almost like the history of the internet or the way that the internet and mainstream culture sort of is intertwined, that it, it is a sign of the, you know, the zeitgeist of the moment, if you will, of what is the most popular thing on the internet at any given moment. Um, and the what Vanity Fair considered a the first internet blockbuster, the first really big movie that was produced and viewed by the internet, what really changed that landscape back in 2005 was a movie called Loose Change, and that was about 9/11 conspiracy theories. And essentially, uh, my thesis is that all the media uh, and the culture that has, the, you know, sort of transpired in the wake of not only 9-11, but these major 9-11 conspiracy theory movies, is that that has impacted everything. Uh, so following that trajectory of what, what are the next documentaries, what are the next films that really make it big, and sort of dissecting the media at any given moment, taking it chronologically at any given moment, what is the major film, the internet film of the moment, and what does that say about our culture and sort of uh, dissecting it that way. Well, I, I highly recommend it, and I'll uh, provide links. I've seen all but like five or six minutes of the stuff that's currently in the works, so I'm one of the lucky few who's sort of on the inside getting to watch it and I don't know, be a sounding board for your ideas. And I think it's a great series and highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you. If anyone is interested in watching it, uh, they can go to thesyncbook.com, the S-Y-N-C book.com slash 2020. There are, it's a five episode series. It's the whole series is five episodes. The first four are already out. And the fifth episode should be out uh, in about a week, um, 10 days max. Um, you should be able to see the, the whole series. So if you want to get started watching the first four episodes, by the time you're up to episode five, it should be out. Cool. Speaking of SyncBook, that kind of explains why you are here, because usually we have the musician or the songwriter who performs the song, which is the answer to the previous week's question as a guest. But I don't know who Synchronistic Duologue are. Uh, they were a couple, there are a couple of poets who showed up 
maybe they reached out with an email many computers ago, many crashes and lost information ago. And they showed up, did a really cool thing, and then left. And I don't have any contact info for them. So I was thinking, well, you and I are kind of engaged. We are engaged in a kind of synchronistic duologue, dialogue. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Working in parallel in synchronistic arts. And we had our own show synchronized, our, I guess... I guess my original, my first podcast that I worked as a producer and and co-host on, I'd been on radio, and and Radio 8-Ball was going at that time, but it wasn't really a podcast. And, uh, and yeah, so anyway, so that gives some sense of why you are here in Synchronistic Duologues stead. And if the guys from Synchronistic Duologue ever hear this and want to reach out, well, 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 I'll find a way to have you on the show. But for now, you're here in their stead to help decode Louise Goffin's question and the answer she got, which was sense and anti-sense from Synchronistic Duologue. What did you make of all of that? So I'd have to look at the exact wording of her question. I believe it was... What's the, what's the, best, uh, the best question to ask in life? What is the best question yeah. to ask in life? What is the best question to ask in life? And she gets this answer, which is these two poets, um, each reciting parallel uh, prose where they're sort of talking, overlapping, and you're having difficulty making out. You can get little snippets of what this guy is saying, then you get snippets of what the other guy is saying. They're sort of talking over each other, and then it sort of weaves in and out where they suddenly are in sync and they're saying the same thing and you have this beautiful harmony and then it breaks back into this sort of um not necessarily competition not necessarily competing voices uh but distinct um and i guess uh i would say competing in a sense for competing for your attention so you're not able to follow this train one train of thought you sort of uh, has an effect of scattering the senses and you're you end up in this liminal space of just grabbing this dream like bits and pieces. Uh, it's really, really interesting. It's incredibly well done. I think it's, um, I, th- I think it's re- really significant. The fact that they, where they, there is one point where they re- really kind of sync up and are speaking together and they do this sort of humming, sing-songy little bits. Everything is spoken word except for this one point there. And I think it's interesting that they use music as the sort of um, binding agent. And I think that speaks to uh, not only Radio 8-Ball, but a a lot of, I don't know, a lot of the artistic endeavors that you and I both uh, find very personal, personally significant. Um, As far as be, and that being an answer to her question, uh, it's not only the title, Sense and Anti-Sense, uh, this idea of, the again, these sort of polarity or this duality, um, but the whole structure of it, I think is, uh, gosh, you know, um, you 
I don't know if you want to go into this, but you and I are you know used to participate in these things, these sort of xenochrony. Uh, xenochrony is an expression coined by uh, Frank Zappa, which is hey, he would take a bass line recorded at this one concert and a guitar riff that he recorded in the studio one day and overlap them and uh, see see how they work together, right? So creating this, um, to break down like what that means, literally, xenochrony means uh, strange time or foreign time. So these things that weren't meant to be in sync, but are. And you and I um, would participate in these events like taking the you know, uh, Wizard of Oz and playing Dark Side of the Moon. Although far more interesting versions of that. I mean, come on. That's for amateurs. Oh, sure. I'm trying to <laughs> trying to give a relatable, but yeah, give, give one that you're really interested in. The best one that I, that I hit upon, and I don't think I hit upon it, but the best one that I, uh, that I played with or experimented with was the White Album and Rosemary's Baby. I think the way history weaves into that one is pretty phenomenal. I wanted to, I'm sorry, because I interrupted, I just, do you know what song they were humming in synchronistic duola, in in sense and anti-sense? I do not, do you? Yeah, that was The Girl from Ipanema. You know that song? Oh, interesting. Yeah, sure, sure. So you couldn't tell, but that was the song. Do you have any, do you have any association with that song? None. (laughs) Anyway, I kind of, I kind of got you off your, off your path there. But as far as, you're, you're talking about Xenochrony. Well, just to say that, you know, I think that's something that I'm so familiar with. And even I've done uh, podcast experiments. Uh, we've literally done, oh, I could think of two different occasions where we tried a similar sort of experiment uh, in a podcast. I know years ago, uh, I used to do this podcast called Always Record. And one of my co-hosts at the time, Bill Klaus, he did a thing where he took a minute from this episode and a minute from this episode and a minute from this episode and sort of tried to weave them together and create an audio um, mosaic, if you will. And uh, I found that really interesting. I took part in uh, at least one or two more experiments. We had a thing where there was can remember a day where we had a guest on who just kept having really bizarre Skype connectivity issues where we could hear them, but they couldn't hear us or vice versa. And we couldn't do this, couldn't have a conversation. So we decided to do an experiment and said, okay, you just say what you want to say, you know, or read a book or do whatever. Here's your voice. And then we're going to try and have this other conversation and see where it overlaps and see where it, what synchronicities occur. Um, tried that for for an episode once, and then even recently, uh, I mentioned this magical ritual that I did in April. We released that as an episode of Always Record, and one of the components of that was a sort of um, what. Zanor, who sort of spearheaded this project, uh, he envisioned as a sort of spoken word pre-jazz. So literally had 12 different, uh, maybe 13, 12 or 13 people on a Skype call. And we gave about, I don't know, three, four minutes where 
everyone could just kind of say whatever they wanted to say, and there was some overlap. Some you try to treat it like a like a musical act of like, okay, you're speaking, maybe I pull back. Oh, now this one goes forward, or what can I, you know, just sort of find the timing of when to speak. And it's um, it's something that I find really interesting, and I actually have a weird amount of experience with. And to hear these guys do this, it was really impressive.、Uh, they did a great job. It's a shame we don't know who they are to really credit them personally. But that's a as a fantastic piece, and I hope people take the time to listen to it. I'll put it in the show notes. So just bring it back to Louise's question: What's the best question? Do you, can, is there some sort of concise way that you feel like sense and anti-sense、uh, reflects something back at that question? Sure. Yeah, I think、um, you know, especially as, as I said, as someone who has experienced a, a resurgence of、uh, anxiety in the last few months,、um, or and doubts and all those sorts of things. The idea of like these swirling questions. What's the best question? And then suddenly you're bombarded with these like, you know,、uh, almost like invasive thoughts. Like maybe it's this, maybe it's this. It's all competing and like spinning in your mind. And then suddenly these moments where it comes together and it's crystal clear is where you're sort of in sync. And I think、uh, what that says to me is this sort of like. Combination of the head and the heart, or you know, left and right brain, sort of、uh, male and female、uh, aspects of our nature, all the different sort of cliche tropes that we can we, we use to explain that. It just because it becomes a, a really common phrase doesn't mean it's、uh, any less important, right? There's a reason it's so essential and so foundational. So this idea of where you can come together, where you can bring these things together,、uh, are these moments of clarity, and then also realizing that you sometimes even in the spaces that you're lost in,、uh, you find even if you're not able to fully dissect the whole thing, you're getting insights from them. So what I, I guess the concise way I could say that is. When it's when you're lost and when it doesn't make sense, just take what you can. It's like a, snippets of a dream. That's okay. You know those those are still powerful insights. And then, if possible, find ways to bridge your different. Oh, you know what? What I'm worried about what I'm doing with my career. I'm worried about what I'm doing with my relationship. Or I have all these different concerns that I have at any given moment in a day. See where those things overlap and how you can bring them together in a in a space where you're actually in harmony. And that's the I don't know. That's where the, the question really or the focus really、uh, comes into into a clear and vibrant space. It's interesting. Well, just for me, and I, I won't go into it too much because I, I talked about it a fair amount on the last episode. But with that reading, what jumped out at me was the idea that, well, if the, the if the part where it all comes together is the part where it makes sense, then maybe the question is, where is the agreement? Where is the harmony? Where is the you know we're all sort of、mm-hmm. everything's bouncing off each other, but where's the agreement? And the, you know, there's all kinds of agreements. Some agreement can be very bad, 
but uh, I guess again, just thinking about that reading, if I was thinking like because you seem to focus in on that those moments of connection, I think that might be one way of approaching the reading, which is to say, where do we agree? Where do we harmonize? Where do we? Where can we find a way to sing in unison, even knowing that it's only briefly before we spin off into our own individual monologues or yeah. self dialogues? But uh, but we're gonna we're just gonna keep moving along here because the next thing to talk about is today's song of the day. Now every day the Radio Eight Ball app generates a song of the day. And you're familiar with this because you work, you have a, you have a small role in this, uh, well, no small roles, but uh, small in terms of the hours it takes in the Radio 8 Ball Enterprise, which is that you inform the artists when their songs are chosen as the song of the day. And so you well know that today's song of the day is Redwood by Mirna. Don't act like And I'm just kind of curious if you have any synchronistic associations with that song, which was, by the way, recorded on Radio 8 Ball on January 10th, 2018. So, uh, first off, it was it was a beautiful song. I, I got to say, of all the... You know, it's right, you're right. I, I'm the guy who every day checks to see... What is the website produced as a, what is it, it, the algorithm or whatever has randomly chosen? No algorithm, it just just picks something at random. Yeah, there's no, I guess that, is that an algorithm? It basically I'm, I'm picks something at random. I'm not intelligent enough to answer that. Okay, sorry. Sorry to out <laughs> you for your lack of intelligence, you big dummy. <laughs> <laughs> that's that that that's why you chose me. I right. I can't uh, I can't discern how it works. It's all mystical, magical to me. Man. Um. But uh, the the some computer deity yeah. inside cyberspace has chosen these songs each day, and uh, and I listen to them, and I email the, the person, and you know some of them I really like, some of them speak to me in a synchronistic way. Um, but as far as like um, music, this was one that I genuinely like, really enjoyed the song. Um, it was. It, I feel like this is a lot of your stuff is like more singer songwriter focused. Mm-hmm. The sort of um, aesthetic of this uh, of Mirna's uh, Redwood song really spoke to me as a as a sound I really like. And um, I actually went and found them on Facebook and gave them a like. Encourage others to do the same. I was very disappointed to see they only had like a thousand something likes, and I was like, "How is that possible?" That was really good. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, so, uh, just want to throw that out there that I thought they were great. Um, I'm glad you also encouraged me to check out the music video for this song. I thought that video was fantastic, um, and uh, I do have a, some personal things I could speak about here of how, how it affected me. I just want to say I'm an East Coast guy. I grew up in New York City, I spent uh, the first 30 years of my life there, uh, and I've lived, sort of bounced around over the last, oh gosh, eight years, but I'm, um, I've still maintained most of my time on the East Coast. I've only been 
in the Redwoods once, and they are something that have fascinated me. I guess I have, uh, you know, sort of this, I, I don't know, this sort of uh, fantasized love of these classic American nature you know, natural elements. Like I, as a child, I really, really wanted to see the Grand Canyon. When I first time I was able to take my own, with my own money, take a vacation anywhere I wanted to go, uh, I went to the Grand Canyon. It was just something I always wanted to see. Um, and when I, gosh, that would have been 2000. Wow. Wow. I just realized was that in 2014? It's got to be. Olympia Sync Summit 2014, something which is the topic of my current um, current episode, this Hindsight 2020 episode, something that you, uh, you, Andras, encouraged me to really bring uh, attention to within the episode, some, an event you and I held together. It was literally driving out of that event. Wow, I didn't even think of that. So it would have been 2014, I was in Olympia, and I was driving south after our event. And uh, I'd been on this two-month road trip. And I had to get, I had, uh, J.J. Draw was with me, he had come from France. And I had to get him to an airport, I, I assume LAX. Um, so even though I was leaving Olympia, we had given ourselves a few days to get to LAX for him to fly back to France. So I'm driving south, and I, as we had entered Northern California, I was sort of looking at a road map and then a GPS, and I was like, hey, I see there's two options, and I can take this one major highway, I don't know, like five or something. Um, I could take this south, or here's this Route 1, and it cuts through the Redwood National Forest, and I've always wanted to see that, and I asked my, my wife at the time, and JJ, who was, it was the three of us in the car, and I said, hey, do you guys mind if we drive through the Redwood Forest? It looks like it should only add an hour or two to our trip, and they're like, sure. And um, maybe you, as a West Coast guy, can already tell it added way more than an hour or two to our trip. Um, and we lost GPS service, so I didn't have a good way of navigating other than a map that I had. And uh, it looked like once I was sort of on Route 1, I was there for a while. And my experience of being, my only experience of being in the Redwoods was I got there at like 2 in the morning, spent the whole night driving through them. Oh, wow. Uh, so I only <laughs> saw them like in my headlights. <sighs> and I couldn't really stop and slow down because I had to get this guy to the airport. And uh, so my experience was these winding, you know, park roads in the middle of the night driving nonstop, sort of being lost in this forest maze. And in one sense, it was frustrating and disappointing. And in another sense, it was absolutely magical because um, my wife and JJ had fallen asleep. They're like, all right, screw this. Like, we're not seeing anything, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to keep driving. So I'm basically like by myself 
eyes peeled on these foggy roads, just trying to like look at trees while I'm driving as fast as I can, hoping no animals jump out in front of the car. And it really had this very magical, mystical uh, feeling for me. And um, oh, and I um, I just I just rewatched uh, Vertigo recently, and um, I use. A clip from Twelve Monkeys with Vertigo, isn't don't, don't they go to the Redwood? Um, yeah, far from that. Yeah. Um, so just to say, this is something that's like interestingly connected, and for me, all those things are this sense of sort of this almost a uh, parallel dimension lost in this magical maze. Uh, if you look at Vertigo, is you know the sense of confusion, um, and watching the music video for for Myrna's Redwood, you see that she's in this industrial, you see a lot of barbed wire and broken concrete and sort of this dead industrial American landscape. And then she's fantasizing and this magical creature comes and whisks her into this forest where they dance and have this magical experience. And uh, it just really hit me hard as um, something that I, I just, I, I don't know, I have a very strong personal resonance with uh, as far as like a indication of what it means from an oracle standpoint. Um, it kind of speaks to that going back to the synchronistic duologue, that dreamlike getting lost in a space, um, what you can find there. Um, there is a line that really stood out to me, though. It was a sort of a negative uh, or, or seemingly negative thing. Uh, she keeps saying, like, um, it's too late. It's too late. Um, that was a sort of a little foreboding. Um, but I think, again, to my road trip experience, it was like, well, when I got there, it was too late to have the park experience. But instead, I had this totally other transcendent experience. Um that maybe it's not as a, you know, it doesn't have to be then a negative. It's a, well, you came here when it was too late to, for your expectations, and instead you're getting something completely different. Well, one other piece of information that may or may not mean anything to you, but that song, when it was originally performed on Radio 8 Ball on January 10th, in Hollywood, California, it was the answer to a question from an actor named Troy Kalek. And Troy, I don't know if this fits into your sort of hindsight 2020 theory, but in a way it does because he had a viral moment because of a scene he had in the TV show Barry with Bill Hader. He had a, uh, a line. He basically he did an improv that uh, Bill Hader talked about several times on TV talk shows where someone said, I'm the king of such and such mountains. And his line was, I'm the king of Suckball's Mountain. And he got uh, famous, well, sort of Internet famous for a little while for saying king of Suckball's Mountain. So I don't know if that that's that brings a certain level of profanity to the sort of sacred spell you've woven. No, I mean, I get it. It's fun. And I maybe mean, that's the role of TV. Yeah, and uh, for me, that what that brings to mind is, I said I had this 
lifelong fascination with sort of um, you know, the natural parks. And again, you know, like a guy like raised in New York City, I'm like, oh, I can only imagine these grand open nature spaces, you know. Uh, one thing that does not impress me is Mount Rushmore, uh, <laughs> where we just had our king of Suckball Mountain make his little uh, overtures fascist overtures so um yeah that's uh that's what that brings up for me <laughs> that's, that's, you think now and mount rushmore is like your king of that mount rushmore moment was i'm the king of suck balls mountain for you yeah yeah it's funny uh it's one of those it's not funny it's tragic it's one of those things that's baked into our language that i don't think i mean if you're not a podcast host if you don't have to go back and listen to what you said you you might not know how much toxic stuff is there in our language like just saying oh there's another podcast i'm working on i've talked about it a little bit uh, in previous episodes and i'll be talking about it in future episodes but basically there's this thing of like what films are on your mount Ru- oh i don't want to my i don't want to put my favorite films on a mount rushmore but it's like it's a it's sort of a a metaphor for your top things mm. it's on your mount rushmore of favorite dot 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 uh there was another one what was it uh oh i i had a guest on the great jj gonson a photographer punk rock photographer restaurateur from boston and one of my old high school classmates and at one point i was like referred to her as the patron saint of something she's no don't put that catholic crap on me and it's like oh yeah patron saint doesn't mean it actually means something like mount rushmore actually means something these things that are just in our language not maybe someday king of suckballs mountain will get there that's so funny uh but now now when anyone who's listening to this thinks of mount rushmore they can think of suckballs mountain and hey, when you're thinking of patron saint, also think of Suckballs Mountain. Anything we can do to, to throw a little love towards Troy Kalick. That was also the episode where we had Craig Stark from The Hateful Eight. It was a it was a it was a great and weird episode because we were kind of in exile from Starburns because they had had a some sort of sexual harassment thing. We were that was when Feral Audio became Starburns Audio, and we were sort of in the in the in a liminal state and had to record in this black box theater off of, uh, I believe, off Santa Monica Boulevard, maybe off of Melrose. Anyway, let's uh, Can I, um, uh, go on. Yeah. Well, do you, do you mind doing a quick little divergence here into talking about film for, for a few minutes? Sure, sure. Why not? Yeah, is that cool? Because you hit on something that I've... I wanted to have this conversation with you personally, and maybe we could just do this as part of a podcast. If you don't, if it doesn't suit this episode, feel free to cut it out. But uh, there's two things. So I've never seen The Hateful Eight, but I have a photograph on my phone that is because it amused the shit out of me. I was like, oh, I still hadn't seen it, but I was back, oh, I don't know, in January, February, something like that. Working at the bar, you know, it's like, oh, you put on a movie over the bar, right? So I said, oh, here's the Hateful Eight extended version on Netflix. And I'm like, well, that's like a three-hour movie. I'll put that on. People love 
Tarantino and all these guys. Cool, I'll just put that on, and then I won't have to think about what's on the screen for a few hours. And I have a photograph here of Netflix. Are you still watching the Hateful Eight extended version? Continue watching or exit. And I thought there's something that says multiple things about that film, but also like the way in which we take in media at this point. Can you imagine? You know, that's a feature that's there for your binge watching The Office or some shit, and it's like in between an episode, it's like, hey, are you still watching this, or is this just stuck on autoplay? But to be that your movie is either considered too long, <laughs> that gosh, if I was, if I liked Tarantino movies and was like into that, and in the middle of a movie, suddenly the Netflix pop up says, "Are you still watching?" I don't know. It just feels like a huge commentary on, on where our, was it in uh, the movie i have no idea i don't I, like i said what i took the picture of is just the are you still watching the hateful eight extended version question mark continue watching or exit that would just amuse the shit out of me i think it'd be just a great synchronicity if it was when craig stark was on screen because he's on screen very little although he's very gotcha. uh crucial there it's a his scene, he has very little to do in the movie, but if uh, but his scene is incredibly memorable uh, because he is being marched naked through the snow. So, gotcha. Yeah, I have yeah, I have no idea what what uh, what was happening in the movie at the moment. It's a, it's a black screen with just white text on it. Do you yeah. know what time? What how long into the movie it was? Like I don't know. I'm assuming it was more than two hours I, I i don't know yeah that is and this is too many thing. months ago i i probably could have answered that question months ago i just happened upon that i was going to my phone cleaning up some stuff and i just happened upon that uh within the last 24 hours or so so it's funny you mentioned hateful eight um and i have one other thing that i want to throw out to your sort of um Oh, gosh, I don't know, maybe this is this is too bleak a conversation topic, but... So, I... Oh, about a week ago, I re-watched the film Four Rooms. You know that one? Yeah. Who who are the directors? It's Tarantino... It's Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, yeah. and unfortunately two others that I don't know by name. Okay, um, let me bring it up. So, I hadn't seen that movie in many many years and um so my my current partner and i have been watching there is on uh i don't know if it's on netflix or amazon there is a oh it's uh, sorry doll you... sorry it's allison anders alexandra rockwell robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino so there you go cool are you familiar with either of those other two? Well, yes, Alison Anders, work? definitely. I'm not as I, I may be familiar with Alexandra uh, Alexander Rockwell. Not really. No, I'm not familiar with him, but definitely with Alison Anders. She did Grace of My Heart, that uh, really great sort of not Carol King um, musical biopic with uh, Ileana Douglas, produced by Martin Scorsese, and several other great things. She's she's good. She's good. Cool. So, anyway. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, we've... Um, Chloe and I have been watching this uh, Roll Doll series where it's basically... 
his short stories adapted into episodes of a TV show. This was made in the 60s or 70s. Uh, it's just an interesting, it's kind of like a, oh, a Twilight Zoney. A lot of them have, you know, twist endings and uh, they were just really interesting little teleplays, right? And uh, we watched this one and it's this, and we, we had, it's just a, sorry, one more piece of context. We had been reading uh, some Roald Dahl short stories and that's what sort of inspired when we saw that this, this thing existed, but we wanted to check it out. And so it's like, we watch an episode and it's either like, oh, we recognize this short story or, oh, this is something new. So suddenly this episode comes on and I'm like, man, I feels really familiar. Have I seen this? Did we read this short story? And she's like, no, I don't think so. And I'm watching, I'm like, no, no, I know I've seen this before. I'm trying to figure out what it is. And the story is basically this rich guy challenges this young man to a bet. Can he light his lighter 10 times? Otherwise he chops the guy's finger off. If he can light his lighter 10 times, he wins the guy's car. And if he doesn't light it 10 times, he chops the guy's finger off, right? And I'm like, man, I know I know that story. So it turns out, it was sort of for everyone to know, it was originally a Roald Dahl short story. He wrote that story. It was adapted into this show first. And then it gets adapted a second time years later uh, with uh, for an Alfred Hitchcock show with uh, Peter Lorre and somebody else, another big actor like that um gosh I'm, now i feel shitty that maybe it's like a robert redford or somebody like that uh it's worth worth looking into okay. and the third time that it is adapted is in four rooms for tarantino's segment of four rooms he adapts it again uh where it's um you know bruce willis and tarantino uh chopping this guy's finger off and so I was like, you know what? I have to rewatch now that I'm sort of gone down the rabbit hole and have checked out all the different iterations of this story. I want to rewatch Four Rooms. So in Four Rooms, it's worth mentioning that he credits the Hitchcock show. He references, oh, we were watching this thing and we see Peter Lorre come on and we're like, oh, shit, that's a cool idea. And he literally says, we want to repeat the bet from this TV show. Um and I think it's just so for people's information, it's actually an older story that's not the original, um, it's not the original story or even the original film adaptation. So, um, so yeah, so watching, rewatching Four Rooms, that was the incentive, the, the, the motivating reason why I decided to rewatch Four Rooms. But now that we know, we've learned over the last 20, 25 years, we've learned a lot of things about Tarantino. And one thing we can say that people comment on is this sort of foot fetish aspect that gets incorporated into his films, right? Where like I think it started getting talked about around uh, Kill Bill when he was focusing on Lucy Liu's feet, and in this uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he does that whole scene where like uh, what's her face is in the movie. Um, Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate. Thank you. Sharon Tate is sitting in the movie theater with her feet like press up against the camera, right? And people made a, an issue out of that, you know, just sort of as a talking point. But knowing that, knowing that, 
And then going back and watching Four Rooms, something, there's something that I just, I, I feel like needs, like it should be discussed. It should be, I don't know. It's in the Robert Rodriguez segment. And it's, uh, just to say that, and that was always my favorite scene in the film. It's called The Misbehaviors. It's Antonio Banderas and his two children. And the acting is great and the comedy is really funny. And it's like, that was my favorite scene of, of Four Rooms. And I'm watching it again. I'm like, wow, this really holds up. Where some of the other stuff that's felt a little dated, that scene, that's Robert Rodriguez segment, really maintained uh, a funny and, and timely air. But they keep focusing on the children's feet, like to an extreme point that my lady and I like had a whole conversation about it afterwards, how weird it was. Like there's the whole thing where there's like a dead prostitute in the bed and the kids keep saying like, Oh, I think we might feet. I think your feet smell like I smell. It smells so bad. And they literally do this thing where like the young girl holds her foot up to the camera and it, this goes on for like way too long. And she has the young boy like sniffing her feet. And this scene just kind of drags out and Maybe years ago I saw that and I'm like, okay, there's this sort of comedic element there. But now that we know this, it's like, just raised some really big question mark for me. Of like, is that a, is that Rodriguez making fun of Tarantino? Or is that uh, <sighs> something much more nefarious? Uh, what What is that? I don't know, but it, it really changed my viewing of that film talking about hindsight 2020 it's like now that we know and now that we see this visual motif in their more recent work what do we what does that say about this this scene um so throw that out for whoever wants to if you or if you want to cut this again this is totally off topic but it's something that's been chewing away at me in the back of my mind the last week of why was that creative choice made what does that say knowing what we know now well, uh, the only thing I would add is that it was not Robert Redford who was in the 1960 episode of Man from the South, which is the name of the short story. Uh, it was Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen, maybe. But I'd love it if we could sort of pivot from there to your question for the Pop Oracle. <laughs> okay, well, that's not my question for the Pop Oracle. That's my question for film, uh, film buffs. Um all right, uh, question for the Pop Oracle. Well, uh, as you know, I'm, well, as you said, I'm literally in the, I'm knee deep in finishing this uh, video project. I'm about to embark on a whole new project. I'm transitioning jobs. I just, you know, I've just left basically my career because of coronavirus. And I, everything seems so up in the air. And I wanted to ask, you know, A, I was going to ask, like, um, you know, I really was going to ask about, like, my video or what 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 component am I missing? You know, what, what would make it better or what did I leave out? What do I need to pay attention to? And then I wanted to ask, like, maybe I should focus bigger. And then I kind of narrowed it down to this sort of overarching thing of if I'm doing a hindsight series of talking about perspective and what didn't I notice and all these things. Um, and I want to know what did I leave out in this film? And, uh, 
we didn't discuss it, but I want to say I, your, I want to listen to your previous episode with Louise. Uh, you started off talking about apologies, and I want to sort of acknowledge that, and you know, Olympia Sync Summit, and always revisiting these negative things and things we missed and things we got wrong, and this overarching question for me, I think, boils down to what what am I not? Uh, no, how do I don't want to phrase this? Um, what am I missing? What is in my blind spot? Okay, so. I've got your question entered into the Pop Oracle. You don't have an iPhone, and I have one at the ready, so we're going to use my iPhone to do this musical divination. The question is, what am I missing? What is in my blind spot? And now I'm going to give it a shake. Whoa. Well, this is one of my songs, and... I guess I'll have a few minutes to think about how I want to talk about it. It's called Hideaway. La 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 I really hate it when you break up with me it's not like it's all that necessary You're free to be who you want to be And you know you want to be with me In our hideaway 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 It's our hideaway
And that was Hideaway by me, Andras Jones, from the demo, the demos for a tantric folk opera I was writing in 2005. I performed it twice, and I don't know if you'll ever see the film, but it exists. And that was the answer to Alan Abadessa's question, uh, what am I missing what is in my blind spot? Boy, did I have a lot of blind spots when I was writing that. Uh, so, <clears throat> well, um, what did you make of that, Alan? Uh, well, yeah, I think the first thing that hit me was the sort of um, quarantined uh, living situation that we sort of talked I mean, talked about at the beginning. Um, and Okay, I'll just say I got a, a few things here. Uh, it starts off talking about like a breakup, and um, I did make a decision. It was a point where I considered talking about in this, since I was originally going to sort of ask this question in the context of my video. I was uh, thinking, well, like, well, I didn't address my divorce, which happens in the time frame of this fifth episode. Um, and uh, I decided that that was too personal. Well, just to say that was my, that was my I guess I'm, as I'm listening to the song and I'm like, okay, like, what am I missing? And I'm like, oh, okay, the first line is about, I kind of hate it when we break up. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I, that's addressing that I didn't, I, I didn't address that or whatever. Um, but as it continues, then it's okay, we're in the safe space to sort of hide away. And I'm thinking of like, no, this is now. This is like this is not then. This is now. What's what's my quarantine situation? What is my living situation? What is my hideaway? What is my safe space? And um, the second verse says, uh, and you can correct me in the lyrics. It was like you kind of panicked for someone so relaxed. Uh, and I'm not sure what the next line was, but um, you're really frantic mm -hmm. for someone who's so relaxed. Uh, your state of panic exists beyond the facts. And then line after that, if you know something what? along the lines of "Come over here and be nice, let's calm yeah, down." Yeah, right. Okay, that's what I thought. That's yeah. What they so as I said earlier, I mean, I've um, been dealing with anxiety issues, and it's sort of just—I um, mean, dude, I've—you don't know this. I mean, I don't know how much we've discussed this. I mean, I've completely stopped drinking. Um, so I guess it's, you know, or, or very, very sparingly. And uh, pretty much the same with weed, even. I just found that I wasn't in a space that I was, any of it was agreeing with me. Um, and uh, so this sort of like anxiety and all these sorts of things um, I was mentioning earlier, like that sort of hit me. And I'm like, okay, what is, what is the things I'm concerned about? And what are the things that I need to like focus on and value? And um, I have taken... In the in the last few months, being here with my partner has been so. It's not. It hasn't been totally easy, obviously, but it's been really special. And um, having that that comfort and that that person to share that with, and that becomes less of like a, I'm in hiding, and more of like this is our hideaway, and a space where when we're both feeling anxious, can comfort each other, and. Um, I think where I'm taking this as a sort of 
combination of all those elements together is recently as I'm, you know, when we're coming out of quarantine, it's like, okay, going back to work. And then I was going back to the bar and now I'm not. And I'm like really kind of like figuring out what do I have to do with my life? And I feel like I'm at this crossroads and I've been doubled down, sort of spent the last two weeks. Like, well, I just got to knock out this video and then I can figure everything out. And, you know, she's, uh, about to be going back to school and, you know, working on her business and all this sort of stuff and something there where it's like, well, what ultimately, you know, the thing that I don't talk about in this hindsight 2020 episode is well, the toll that it took on me to give that much of myself to these creative endeavors, which you know me well enough. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I love working on videos and podcasts and artwork and all that sort of stuff. But there is a point at which it becomes uh, a little too consuming. And I feel like I, the mistake I made back then was that I got lost in the production and the ordeal of like this this world of like engaging with people through artwork and the sync book people and all that sort of crap. And ultimately it lessened my relationship with my partner at the time that like, okay, we're just going to every day, like wake up and then go to our separate, you know, workspaces and try and we got to build this online business or we got to like keep working, keep working because we're trying to build something and we spent less and less time with each other and uh, really enjoying our time together. And it was more of this, like, we have to make something happen that very, um, it's the drive that has allowed me to produce so much artwork over the years. And in one ways I'm very grateful for, but also I know that it comes at a cost. And I think the lesson I'm getting from this, what is my blind spot is that sort of like, unplug, stop and smell the roses. Don't forget to appreciate the time you have with someone right now. Don't fall into that same trap. Make this a a, a cozy hideaway rather than a frantic, panicked, worrying about Donald Trump's martial law or fucking, you know, am I going to have enough money to pay rent next month? Am I these are all valid things to worry about, but I, in the context of my question, I'm already worrying about those things. <laughs> so in the context of the question, that song, it feels like, what am I missing? Oh yeah. Like as much as everything's kind of panic inducing, there is also this very uh, wonderful thing. You have a safe space that you have to um, lean on and you should appreciate it and nourish it and um, don't repeat those mistakes. So I think that's, that's the overall essence of what I'm getting from that. Yeah. That one This is the these these are the moments when I question the wisdom of including my own songs in the pop oracle. Uh my feeling was I've put so much time and so much energy into this and even though the the idea is that it's filled with every song recorded in the history of Radio 8 Ball plus mine makes sense because I was making most of these songs their their creation they're like siblings to this format and at the same time i feel like i'm operating on myself in public with uh, with everyone looking uh 
not that everyone the everyone looking I'm used to everyone looking it's having to try and uh, do oper do an operation on myself uh that's uh that's <clears throat> definitely hitting me in a unique place so in terms of the question what am i missing what is in my blind spot I can't really speak to it for you. I think you got everything that you and you're you're adept at finding synchronicity in things, and I think you honed in on absolutely the right thing. For me, what comes up? Well, you kind of mentioned it, and I I talked about it in our last in the last episode. I talked about how I'm someone who walks through life awaiting. Uh, apologies from certain regions and again since you mentioned it I, I was I figured I, I'll see how it went but that's what I was talking about you had given a nice apology about some stuff that went down in 2014 and around sync book and I encourage people who want to know what we're talking about to check out Alan's film don't I'm not going to give any of the information here you just go watch the film, and then maybe once the film comes out, we'll talk about it in another episode. But uh, but in my talking about it, I talked about how, since for the most part, walking around awaiting apologies is just a kind of self-abuse that your mind does to you, and rarely do they actually ever show up. And when they do, they rarely show up in a way that you can actually receive them, or that it's, it feels good to receive them. Um, the analogy I used was that I use a lot of forgiveness the way that you'd use a knife to cut off your own arm to get out of a trap. And I think there's something in this song that's making me think about... Like, I, I say that the limb always grows back, and you keep you keep thinking about that. But in a way, the limb doesn't grow back because... Some of that cutting off means cutting off your feeling for certain people and cutting off certain people, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, well, in whether it's an a actually cutting them off or just like just not reaching out. Um, and so there's something there there. Uh, it made me present to limbs that I have cut off, not just in terms of the person who the song is about, although that's definitely, or the song, who the song was about when I wrote it, because songs, what they're about change. Uh, like right now, the song is about this moment and about your question, but the person who the song was written for or the people that I was hanging out with when the song was written. Um, yeah, so... Thinking of it, if your question were my question, what am I missing? What is in my blind spot? There is something about all these severed limbs littering my past. And there is no past. There's only the present. There, there are severed limbs littering my present. And in some ways, I've, they're intentional blind spots. And as someone who believes in synchronicity, there's a part of me that feels like, you know, it's okay. if we're, like, I'm in sync with them even if we're not talking. But that is definitely the uh, that is a definition of a blind spot. I guess the question would might be if I was going to continue it up is like, are blind? You know, what's the good? What's good? What's what's great about a blind spot? Like, uh, sometimes sometimes it's good not to be able to see or hear something so that you can focus on what you need to. But all of that all of that came up, and I guess just there's something about listening to that, like the boy the 
deep, unguarded, transparent intimacy of that song is something that, uh, wow, listening back to it, it's a place that I don't ever want to go again, which is an odd thing to say because I, uh, yeah, I don't know what to make of it. I, I'm obviously a little bit rocked by the answer. Yeah, I could tell. And, Just to say, uh, yeah, I can sympathize or empathize to an extent of you and I have had a number of conversations over the last two months about me trying to create this final episode of this series. And the hardest thing for me has just been like, I don't, this is an area that I don't want to return to exactly like the way in which I have progressed and grounded myself and recovered from that was by not thinking about that shit anymore, you know, sort of like, reopen old wounds for the sake of a, you know, in, in your case for a podcast, in my case for a YouTube video, it's like we're yeah definitely doing public uh, <laughs> surgery on ourselves uh, in front of the world. So it's like, I was, yeah. And, and nobody cares. It's <laughs> 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 just the worst part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I care and you care. No, no, you ever? No, you're. Yeah, I care about your stuff and you care about my stuff and 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 lots of people care about your stuff. <laughs> um, well, let's let's take this backstage to the to the uh, the Patreon section. If you if you want to follow us back there, it's just a dollar a month, and you get to hear all my questions. And if you don't follow us back there, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes to find Alan's stuff. And Alan, let's go out with some some good words. What do you want to what's what how do you want to close this out? Oh, you gotta put that on me, huh? Um <laughs> well um I guess the the thing that the overall sort of space I'm in right now in my life is um feeling like this is definitely a moment of change. I think it is for me and probably for a lot of people around the country, maybe even the world. Um, and uh, I, the lesson I have to keep sort of telling myself is not to be scared of the future, but to, um, you know, figure out what do I want my future to look like and how to build that. And um, it's like, I'm literally trying to, uh, I'm going to be teaching myself code and trying a whole new not only creative endeavor, but uh, like a whole new skill set. But it was interesting, your conversation with Louise, you guys talk about this idea of um, new instruments, playing instruments you're not familiar with, so like playing a keyboard. Um, I'm in a space where I'm just learning new stuff and I'm literally changing my career path at almost 40 years old. It feels scary, uh, not knowing what's happening with my country and fucking, you know, Nazi goons and everything seems scary. And yet the only option I really have is to like face the future and figure out how do I make this something that I want to, um, that I, that I want to keep stepping into and how do I take control of that and how do I embrace, embrace that. And, um, I think, that's a, 
that's where I've come to is that that's what's needed of me. Uh, that's what I that's what I need to do to to keep going. And um, I don't know if that's an overly positive thing, but I encourage anyone listening to you know things the, the old foundations are crumbling. Think about what you want your future to look like, and you know how do you want to how do you want to create that? Um, I think as much as there is a moment of crisis, there's a moment of opportunity, uh, at least for personal growth and maybe for um, just development and maybe making a, a new world together that maybe we can, maybe we don't have to have a fucking fascist coup. That'd be cool. Thank you for giving your attention and intention to this episode of Radio 8 Ball Season 3, The Appening, with our guest Alan Abadessa. Please remember to subscribe to Radio 8 Ball in your podcast app. And if you like the show, please help other people find us by rating and reviewing Radio 8 Ball positively. If you tell your synchronicity story, I'll read it on the show. Of course, we encourage you to download the Radio 8 Ball app from the iTunes App Store. And finally, I do hope you'll join our Patreon campaign and follow us backstage for my pop oracle reading where i asked who would most benefit from my apology Mm, mm -hmm. the patreon link is in the show notes we're going to go out with the opening minutes of the first synchronized podcast including the opening which i am very proud of i will provide the link in the show notes and with that i'm out until next time i'm your host andras jones Wishing you lots of spine-tingling synchronicities, connections with the natural world, and all the inspiration you can handle. This is James Evan Pilato from Media Monarchy, and you're listening to SyncBook Radio from thesyncbook.com. I'm at a big coincidence. There's the holy moment, and then there's the awareness of trying to have the holy moment. In the same way that the film is the actual moment really happening, but then the character pretending to be in a different reality. It's all these layers. We think everything is separate, limited. I'm over here, you're over there, which is true. But it's not the whole truth, because we're all connected. The time as of now is now. And you are listening to Synchronize, the weekly audio magazine exploring and highlighting the best in the synchronistic arts. Please set your minds to open. Open the blood bay doors. Hello, this is Alan Abadessa Green from SyncBook Press. Welcome to Synchronize. We have a great show for you today with segments featuring Andras Jones, Alex Robinson, Jason Barrera, and Jake Kotza. Before we get too deep, I'd like to give you some background. When Andras and I first began talking about creating a new show for SyncBook Radio, one of the early ideas was to hone in on a Sync of the Week, essentially a news item or some such that highlighted the synchronicities being tracked by our Sync community. We didn't expect that our first show would start off on such a tragic and dark note, but the big story of this week is, of course, the Boston Marathon.
Whenever something like this happens, there's often a parallel where people notice how these real-life events sync with TV shows or movies or other forms of media, such as the recent controversy around Family Guy and American Dad quote-unquote predicting the marathon tragedy. While I suppose I am somewhat open to the idea of a conspiracy here, it is Fox after all, and a cartoon about a CIA agent, I just highly doubt these kinds of sinks are intentional, particularly since I see that this event was foreshadowed just as strongly by the artists I know. And that's the angle from which I'd like to begin to approach this. It will be impossible to do more than scratch the surface in a one-hour program, but this event, aside from the real-life human tragedy, seems to be a manifestation of so many of the threads our community has been tracking. For starters, there's Sybil Hunter from the Sinkbook Volume 1, who has been tracking backpacks and twins. And the main suspects now being put forth for this bombing are two brothers with backpack bombs. For myself, I've been working on a book for the last year that details synchronicities in the assassinations of both Abraham Lincoln and JFK, as well as 9-11. Well, this Boston Marathon bombing is being called the Twin Bombings, echoing the Twin Towers, and the event took place on the anniversary of Lincoln's death. There was also a fire at the JFK Memorial Library at the same time as the bombings, the sink of which is further enhanced by it taking place on Jackie Robinson Day, Jackie, of course, being JFK's wife. On another note, I had also been tracking a connection that I was just waiting to see on the news. This pattern involved a major disaster on a ship and the symbol of a unicorn. Now we see that the marathon's Boston Athletic Association logo is a unicorn and took place not only on the anniversary of Lincoln's death, but also on the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, the major shipping disaster and the unicorn coming together very loudly. There's also the related story of a huge explosion in Waco, Texas, happening so near April 19th, the anniversary of the Waco siege, and the first of the Boston Marathon suspects being killed on April 19th this week another trialless execution on the actual anniversary. I could go on, but I'd rather give more examples from the community. For this reason, we will hear from Andros Jones and, later in the show, Jason Barrera, to get some insight into how this event syncs with their work. It is worth mentioning that today's episode is not all dark, as we also had the opportunity to speak with Alex Robinson from Sync Book Volume 2, where we learned the value of being a bit foolish. Then we will close out our show hearing from Jake Katza on the emergence of the pattern his work has focused on for so long, the correlation between film and the sync number 42. For this, he will give us a review of the newly released Jackie Robinson biopic, 42. All of the pieces for this audio magazine have been coming in as the Boston bombing story has evolved. Let's start with one that was recorded on April 16th, one day after the bombing, by synchronized producer Andras Jones. Welcome to Fenway Park and welcome to Jackie Robinson Day. Today is the 10th annual Jackie Robinson Day on the 66th anniversary of his first Major League game at Ebbets Field back on April 15, 1947. Played first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers. April 15th is Jackie Robinson Day in baseball, commemorating Jackie Robinson's first day in the Major Leagues. Throughout the Major Leagues on April 15th, the day is recognized with celebrations of Robinson's legacy and by all of the players on every team wearing Jackie's number, 42. This year, the Jackie Robinson Day festivities began at Fenway Park in Boston, where the Red Sox faced the Tampa Bay Rays in a game that began at 11.05 a.m. 
Jackie Robinson Day is a new phenomenon in baseball, just 10 years old. And for years, the Red Sox have commemorated this day as part of Boston's Patriots Day celebration, which is highlighted by the running of the Boston Marathon. Patriots Day is intended to celebrate the shot heard round the world and the battles of Concord and Lexington, which initiated the American Revolution on April 19, 1775. To ensure a three-day weekend, Bostonians recognize Patriots Day on the third Monday in April, which this year falls on the 15th. So, on the 15th, the Red Sox were simultaneously celebrating Jackie Robinson Day and Patriots Day. Now, the thing about the Red Sox and Jackie Robinson is this. Exactly two years before his debut with the Dodgers, Jackie had a tryout with the Red Sox. The Red Sox didn't want to give it to him, but were manipulated into doing so by an integration-minded local city councilor named Isidore Muchnick and one courageous Boston sports writer named David Egan, who shamed the Sox into at least giving Jackie and two other Negro League ballplayers a shot. The tryout took place on April 15, 1945 at 10 a.m. and lasted for 90 minutes, during which Red Sox then-owner Tom Yockey is reported to have shouted, Get those niggers off my field. Robinson is said to have never forgiven the Red Sox for this humiliation. With this in mind, it's kind of awkward to watch the Boston TV announcers celebrating Jackie Robinson on the broadcast without any mention of his true legacy with the Red Sox. Exactly 68 years from the first pitch of this game, Jackie Robinson was on that same field, displaying his overwhelming athletic talents for men who could only see his color. This was the only time Jackie would ever play in Fenway Park, since, as a Dodger who played in the National League, the only way he would have played the Red Sox would be if the two teams had met in the World Series. And, as Jackie was fond of pointing out, the Red Sox did not make it to the World Series during the years that Jackie was winning championships with the Dodgers. The Red Sox-Rays game ended at 2.08 p.m., and, as is well known now, at about 2.50 Two bombs exploded at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, killing three people and wounding over a hundred more. Now, I'm currently working on a new book that explores baseball as an oracular sport that can be decoded by using the overlay of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. So, when I learned of the bombs at the marathon, I immediately wondered if the game played at Fenway that day might reveal something about the bombing. Even before the bombs went off, the game was draped in the poetry of war, intolerance, and the lies we tell ourselves about these crimes against humanity. So, with this in mind, I chose to focus on and decode one play and see what it tells us. I chose the second at bat of the bottom of the first inning because this was Jackie Robinson's position in the lineup when he first came to the plate for the Dodgers on April 15, 1947. In that at bat, Robinson grounded out to Boston Braves third baseman Dick Culler. Jumping forward to 2013, the Red Sox right fielder Shane Victorino hit in Jackie's spot in the lineup and grounds out to raise second baseman Ryan Roberts for a sacrifice that sends Red Sox center fielder Jacoby Ellsbury home from third to score the first run of the game. In what I call the cabaseballistic view of the game, right field aligns with chesed, or mercy, and center field aligns with da'at, or mystery. So, in this play, mercy's at the plate, with mystery on third. Third base aligns with hod, or glory, and home plate with malchut, or the world. It may be helpful at this point for listeners to do a brief web search for Kabbalistic Tree of Life and follow along on the map of your choosing.
So, when Mercy hits a ground ball along the path of temperance to second base, which aligns with teferit, or devotion, and the heart, it is tossed along the path of death to first base, which aligns with netzach, or victory. Here we find a reading of heartbreak and death. All of this occurs in the context of a sacrifice play which sends mystery from glory along the path of judgment to claim the world. If we see the mystery as the unknown conspirators who set the bomb, the claiming of the world would be the explosion of the bombs that claimed the worlds of three and marked the worlds of many more. My family is from Boston. I went to school there and I grew up rooting for the Red Sox, so it's not lightly that I suggest some level of karma in the attacks that struck America's first city. When the Red Sox won the game on a walk-off double from D.H. Mike Napoli that scored second baseman Dustin Pedroia in the bottom of the ninth, and all those Red Sox uniforms with Jackie's numbers on the back charged to the center of the field to celebrate their victory, Boston's TV announcer Don Orsillo didn't shout, it's a walk-off on Jackie Robinson Day. Instead, he shouted, it's a walk-off on Patriots Day, thus invoking the gods of war rather than the gods of peace. Now, the blame for this cannot be laid entirely at the announcer's feet, for as the voice of the Red Sox, he was merely continuing a narrative that runs from Lexington and Concord through Jackie Robinson's ill-fated tryout in 1945 to this tragic day in the city of Boston. I wish there was an easy lesson to be drawn from this, but there is not. There is simply what is and what we make of it. And that is yet to be revealed. This is Chipper Dog from Sky Blue Symposia. You're listening to SyncBook Radio from thesyncbook.com. It's the Radio Wave Show.